Welcome to Future of Tech, hosted by Avishai Sharlin, Division President of Amdocs Technology. In this podcast, Avishai sits down with some of the most innovative minds in technology to learn how they are disrupting the present and what kind of impact they hope to have in the future. From the machine learning programs that are solving some of the world's biggest problems to what AI can do to help fight biological bottlenecks in human thinking, no topic is off limits. So sit back, relax, and maybe take some notes because what you hear on this show might just be a glimpse into the future. To say that Yariv Bash has always aimed high would be a little bit too on the nose. Yariv is currently the co-founder and CEO of Flytrex Aviation, but he was also the first CEO of Space IL, a 100 million Israeli nonprofit organization that attempted to land the first private interplanetary robotic mission on the moon. On this episode of Future of Tech, Yarif tells the story of the many obstacles he faced and knows he heard on the way to building that rocket to the moon. And he'll discuss what he sees for the future of space travel and inspiring the next generation of young engineers. Plus, he dives into the work he's doing now with Flytrex and how drone technology is shaping up to change the way we live, have things delivered within a matter of minutes via drone, and much more. There are challenges though, including how drones will be regulated and what kind of safety and security needs to be put in place before they can fly over saturated cities. But Flytrex is already hard at work on those challenges. And Yarif gives us some clues about where we'll see drones overhead next and when. Enjoy this episode. Future of Tech is brought to you by Amdocs Tech. Amdocs Tech is Amdocs' R&D and technology center, paving the way to a better connected future by creating open, innovative, best-in-class products and continuously evolving the way we work, learn, and live. To learn more about Amdocs, visit the Amdocs technology page on LinkedIn. So I'm very happy to, uh, to host today a meeting with uh, Yariv Bash, which is a co-founder and the first CEO of Space IL, one of the most uh, innovative and inspirational uh, non-profit organization I've ever seen in my lifetime at least, and we'll probably speak about it a lot. He's also currently serves as the co-founder and CEO of Flytext, which uh, is dealing with um, drones. So we'll, spoke about, we'll speak about this as well. So welcome to Future of Tech, uh, Yariv, and uh, very happy to have you. Thank you. Happy to be, uh, to be on the show. Thanks. So, you know, so many questions, but let's start from, uh, from the beginning. How did it all start? Like, how did you get into this uh, initiative and, and decided that uh, out of nowhere we're, we're going to land something on the moon? <laughs> uh, well, there was a lot of alcohol involved, of course. Uh, back in 2010, I was uh, an engineer working for the government, for the uh, Ministry of Defense. And I was also uh, co-leading an event called Machanet. And Machanet is a creativity tank for the uh, Israeli Defense Forces and Security Services. 
It's a three-day event in an Air Force base in the desert, just bringing the craziest technological guys from, you know, the equivalent of the FBI, CIA, NSA, and all those guys, as well as the uh, Israeli Air Force and the equivalent of the Marines, really bringing all the most, the, really the coolest developers and the craziest uh, technological guys from all different branches of the, uh, of the government. And we let them have fun for three days. You can't work on a project that will become operational. You have to work on things that are smart and useless because we want to have synergy between those different uh, people from different uni units. And we want to let you have fun with a field you never played with before. So if you're a programmer, you can solder. Uh, if you're you know, a mechanic, you can start programming. And then you can come back really empowered to your unit. So back in 2010, we brought Shimon Peres. Back then, he was the president of Israel. And we had an amazing event. And I asked myself, okay, so what can we do next year that will be even crazier than that? And I thought to myself, well, let's build a rocket, launch it to the edge of space, a small one. We can do that from the Air Force Base. And put a small uh, plastic spacecraft on that rocket, film it, and just release the spacecraft and call it the, uh, the first Israeli spacecraft. And one evening I went to a friend's house. He uh, lives in Tel Aviv, not uh, too far from uh, where I used to live. And I told him about my idea and he said, ah, you're not thinking big enough. And I asked him, are you, you talking about a CubeSat, a nanosatellite? That's too expensive. The, uh, the entire budget of the camp is a few tens of thousands of dollars. And he said, no, what about the Google Lunar X Prize? The, uh, the competition to send an unmanned spacecraft to the moon. So I was like, I remember there was something about that. We, we saw some videos, we read the, about the competition, and I basically told him, I, are you crazy? That's millions of dollars, if not more than that. Fortunately enough, Elon has a wide selection of scotch. And as I was strolling back home in the streets of Tel Aviv, walking home, in the middle of the night, I asked myself, well, if I open an Israeli team to compete in that competition, how should I name it? And that night I registered the spacehale.com domain name. I emailed Jonathan from the Israeli Air Force Industries. I knew him through the uh, Machanet, the creativity camp. And I also posted on my Facebook uh, page, uh, who wants to go to the moon? And that's how we got started. Uh, a few people answered on Facebook. One of them was Kfir, which I also knew from the camp. And the three of us met in a pub a few days later and started plotting our way towards the moon. It appears that uh, most of your initiative starts in a pub or in drinking something. <laughs> okay, so you sit, you have an idea. How do you bridge the gap? It's like, uh, literally, it's, it's, uh, it is uh, flying to the moon. From point A to reaching to the moon, what are the milestones or the, the hurdles that you need to address? So, you know, it's, it's like... Any other big vision, if you knew at the beginning what it would take, you wouldn't have started. And I think it's the same for, uh, for Space AL. So we, we sent an email to the chairman of the Israeli Space Agency, Professor Ben Israel. Uh, he's a very serious guy. He was uh, like a three-star general. He was a three-star general in charge of the Israeli DARPA. The, uh, the entire R&D of the defense, uh, Ministry of Defense before that. And basically, you know, we sent him an email, dear uh, Professor Ben Israel, he's also a professor, 
uh, we're three young engineers, we'd like to send this out to the moon, can we have a meeting? And you know, thinking about emailing the head of NASA, and he replied, sure, you can come to my office. So we went into his office. After you land on the moon, come to my office or before? So, you know, we start with a meeting. Okay. And you know, we showed him a presentation. That was the end of 2010. And in that presentation, uh, we, you know, we, we started the presentation and after a few slides, he just told me, okay, you can stop. Let me have the laptop. And he started, you know, moving the slides on his own. Stop, I want to have a look. And in those slides, we said, we're going to land on the moon in two years. It took us almost a decade. It's going to cost less than $10 million. We ended up with $100 million spacecraft. Uh, it's going to be the size of a large Coca-Cola bottle. Uh, the spacecraft, uh, after fueling, weighed more than half a ton. And, you know, he looked at our plans and he said, ah, it's going to take much longer. It's going to cost you a lot more. That's the size of the spacecraft. No way. It's going to be much bigger. You know, by the end of the presentation, we will show that we're going to get a free lunch, but we're going to just, you know, be launched out of his room with a kick. And he said, he said, guys, you're not there yet, but I think you have a chance. I'm willing to be, you know, to help you and be on your advisory board. And actually, I, a month from now, I have my annual conference. I want you on stage presenting the idea. Now, the annual conference had hundreds of you know, participants. In the front line, in the front row, we had people like the deputy administrator of NASA, the chairman of the European Space Agency, those guys. And even though, though uh, uh, Professor Ben Israel knew our plans are not realistic at that point, he still gave us 50 minutes on stage to talk about that, which was, you know, amazing. Uh, luckily for us, in the audience, uh, there was another guy. And when we uh, stepped down, he approached us and said, oh, you're the space sail guys, do you have any money? And we told him, no, well, we just got started. And he said, I'll give you $100,000 to start. Uh, no obligations. And that was Maurice Kahn, one of Israel's leading philanthropists, who's also a space buff. He dives in the Caribbean once a year with Buzz Aldrin and other friends. And that's how we got started. And it was, you know, we went to the boss of the boss of the boss of Jonathan, my co-founder. Jonathan back then was a student at the space division. And we, you know, we had a meeting with the head of the uh, Israeli Aerospace Industries Space Division. And, you know, we started showing him our plans and he wasn't that nice as Professor Ben Israel. He started, you know, screaming at us that this is crazy and it's not going to work and the plans are unrealistic by an order of magnitude. And then he calmed down and he said something amazing. He told us, guys, I have the only facility in Israel where you can build a spacecraft. I believe that as long as you have some chance of succeeding, I believe it's my obligation to help you. And that's how we got started. So there were a lot of other people who said no. I don't remember who they were, but you know, it's all about the people who said yes. Yeah. Your mother, my mother not included. <laughs> and in terms of a space journey, can you explain the, um, the difficulties? Why is it so, uh, why can't you do it in a, in a cola size uh, aircraft? Why do you need a, 100 million, what, what are the, uh, the main issues? So the, the main problem is that space is very different than anything else. It's counterintuitive. Uh, here on Earth, 
if your computer heats up, the fan starts spinning a lot faster. In space, there's no air. If, the, if there's a fan and it spins faster, it's just going to generate more heat. So, you know, you have to dissipate the heat in other ways. And that's just one aspect. And there are dozens, if not hundreds, of other aspects where you really need the, uh, the know-how and the experience and heritage of people who have already done it. Uh, so Israel has a, a nice space industry. We produce satellites. We've never built a spacecraft. So that's a completely new era, area for, for anyone in Israel. So doing that for the first time, we tried gathering as much information and know-how from people who work or used to work at NASA or the European Space Agency, but it's counterintuitive. Everything you do is for the first time and it's different. Uh, to give you an example, you can't, just another example, you can't come to SpaceX and tell them, hi guys, I've just built this spacecraft in my backyard. I glued everything together and used some duct tape. Uh, plus, please put that on your launcher. It's going to be all right. Oh, by the way, 80% of the spacecraft is explosive fuel. It doesn't work that way. Everything has to be certified. Everything has to, at the end, uh, especially when you're building a large, or not a CubeSat, a large vehicle that has fuel on it, they have to rely, to rely on the certifications. They have to make sure that this thing will work uh, because they're launching a few satellites, and if one of them explodes, it's a huge risk to the rest of the missions. So, for instance, you could have done it theoretically in a, something the size of a Coca-Cola bottle or maybe just a bit, bigger, a bit bigger than that. But, for instance, the, uh, the fuel tanks, there aren't fuel tanks that small that have space heritage that have been used. Just the, uh, you know, when we start going into, started going into the details, just the valves that separate the fuel from the fuel, in the fuel tank from the thruster. You need just, you know, you can't have a single point of failure. So you need between two and three valves between the fuel tank and the thrusters. And each one of those valves weighs more than a kilo, more than two pounds. And you want those parts that have already been used in space. So when you start summing things up, things get a lot bigger. And when your dry payload goes, the amount of fuel you need is three or four times the dry weight. And you let's say that you've used a specific fuel tank and it's no longer, you know, you need a bigger one. You can't get something that's 10% bigger. You can maybe find something that's two times bigger than what you had. So things start, start to grow and things become more complicated. And if you want to build a spacecraft that won't weigh uh, five tons, you have to take educated risks or calculated risks between parts that have space heritage, like our main computer, or parts that are consumer of the shelf. And you're not sure how they behave in space, but you're willing to take a bunch of them so we'll have redundancy uh, because it's going to make the, the mission a lot you know, simpler and lightweighter than using space heritage parts. So it's a lot of those things that have to work. And really, the first time you, you try to operate your thrusters, your propulsion system is, is in space. You can't fire your thrusters here on Earth. You can't simulate that. So a lot of those things are just, you know, you have to simulate them until you start bleeding. Otherwise, you're going to fail. 
space is a house mistress. So in terms of testing and checking, probably there are many, many things that you need to make, uh, make happen and you need to, uh, to ensure the things are in the right order, in the right place. How exactly did you simulate all of those? Did you build uh, proprietary solutions or did you use uh, existing solutions or both? Or? So we actually built a hybrid lab. It's a lab that has all the different components simulated and has the environment simulated. And then you can run simulations of the entire mission from launch until landing. And you can inject errors, shut down parts, do a lot of, of those stuff. And again, you want to do that as much as possible, but you can't really simulate the, the real world. So it's, uh, it's simulate as much as you can, but to, uh, to, you know, to the degree of the resources that you have and time, the resources of both time and money. And as a team, did you work uh, together on everything or was it like each one of you took a task and then you met every few weeks to assemble it or how, how did it go? So it's... Uh, it's crazy. You had like something like 18 different disciplines for mechanics to thermal to avionics to communications, antennas, RF, propulsion. There's, it's crazy. Space is, is, you know, everything has to be 100% integrated and everything is weighted down to the gram. You have a budget, not for just for the financial budget. You have a budget for the mass, for the electronics, for the power consumption for the fuel consumption, thermal budget. It's really a very uh, interwined project. We had a very strong team that did the system uh, engineering. It's not a single person. We had something like five people doing that. So you had a lot of people working together to make that happen. Of course, when you're you know, doing the, uh, the unit developments, each team can work on its own. Uh, so you know, the, the team that developed the cameras and compressors or the uh, communication channel, they could work on their own once they had the, uh, you know, the work points. But at the end, everything has to work together and everything has to be, uh, you have to really include all the different uh, aspects, the, the weight, the thermal uh, aspects, the power consumptions in different parts of the mission. Uh, the fuel consumption, it's a very integrated project. Let's pause for a second because I like to go a bit to the personal aspect and, and ask you, you know, how did it all start from your end? Where did you touch first technology and when did you know that uh, this is an area that you would like to uh, deal with? So uh, I'm an electronics engineer. I, I always, as a kid, I love building stuff. And I'm still amazed by the fact that we can keep things in the air. It's still, for me, it's a bit magic, magical. So I've always loved things that are, you know, airplanes, spacecraft, those kind of things. I never dealt with them. I've never done that professionally. But in my intuition, I assumed that if it was done back in, 19, in the 1960s, it should be, uh, we should be able to do that today for a lot less. And, uh, you know, when I consulted with a few people, some of them said no, and a bunch of them said yes. So uh, I listened to the ones who said yes. And we'll probably speak at later about, you know, the, um, the end of the mission. But uh, before going there, what did you learn? What lessons um, you've taken from the process itself that, uh, you know, 
doing it for the second time, hopefully not for the third time, will make it better. Hopefully there'll, you know, hopefully there'll be a third time. Yeah, after you land in the second time, yeah. I mean, successfully land on the second time. So last time we bought a silver medal from the Olympics. It was our first time in the Olympics. Next time we should go for the gold. That's how I look at it. So uh, things that we've learned. So, you know, it, at the end it was down to uh, taking a few educated risks or calculated risks. And at the end it's, if you're doing a, a, a mission to the moon on a shoestring, well, there are risks that you'll have to take that a multi-billion dollar mission wouldn't take or can, you know, can afford to mitigate. And I think that the, the last mission was pretty good in terms of what it has achieved versus the, uh, the cost of it. It was really, we, we spoke with a few of Israel's really forefathers of the uh, Israeli space industry. And weeks before we launched the spacecraft, one of the really the, the guys who started the space program in Israel told us literally, guys, if the spacecraft will communicate with you, once it goes to orbit, I'm going to take my hat, you know, I'm going to take my hat, bow in front of you. And that was the spirit even before the launch, uh, because it was really a first of its kind on so many levels. And there are a lot of things that we have, you know, tactical things that we've done and learned from the past mission. I can't say that there was, there's going to be a huge change in the way the mission will be run, because it was, it was, it, it was pretty good the way that we ran it. There's one thing we're going to do a bit differently uh, with the next mission. I can't still reveal that, but the, the next mission will have more redundancies, I'll put it that way, to increase the, the chance of success. Okay. Now, at what point in the journey you've decided to turn Space IL into a quote-unquote an educational or opening the door for young people and making it like a something appealing so to so many young young uh, young boys and girls it's a great question and i think that was one of our best business decisions so when we started space IL, when we entered the competition there were more than 30 teams at the google lunar x prize competition and most of them if not all of them were for-profit commercial entities uh, when we uh, wanted to register to the competition we started looking for donors or investors one of the first people we've met were an amazing couple, and they told us uh, something amazing. They said, this is an amazing project, and you should be levering, leveraging the spacecraft into something even bigger than, than landing on the moon. You should leverage that into making an impact on the next generation of Israel. And Jonathan Kfir and myself said, uh, you know, we thought that this is a great idea, and we decided to open Space Air as a not-for-profit and not as a for-profit company. And I think that really it was the best business decision that we could have made. Uh, because when you talk with investors about sending a spacecraft to the moon, there's no direct commercial benefit in going to the moon. Other of, you know, the other competitors tried raising money through advertisement programs. I'll send you your logo to the moon or taking ashes of dead people or, I don't know, doing all kinds of experiments for universities, and nothing really holds water. And, but when you talk about with a potential donor about how can this 
instead of make an ROI to that investor, how can this make a social ROI and impact the nation? It's a much easier sell. And I think that SpaceAil raised more money than all of the other competitors combined. So you could say that turning it into a not-for-profit was the best business decision that we've made in the beginning. Nice. And in, in what uh, way did you execute the, um, the part of educating peop- uh, the young generation? Is it uh, by training them or is it by just visiting uh, or lectures? Or? So we did all, of, all, all and more. My goal, the top goal was to make sure that once we launch and land, all the kids will be sitting with their parents, with their families, or in their classrooms, depending on when we'll be landing or launching. And they'll be explaining to their families what the spacecraft is currently doing. Uh, I don't need all of them to become scientists and engineers. I need just a single kid from every classroom to think about going into science and engineering to make a huge impact on Israel. And you saw that happening. We had kids all over Israel in, you know, in huge events celebrating the launch and then celebrating the landing. We had on the day of the launch and the landing, every class, classroom in Israel, K-12, K-12, they had a lesson about Space AL, what they're doing today, what they're going to do, uh, why is it important, why the moon, uh, how is the spacecraft built. So we really, you know, in terms of reaching out to those kids, I think we made an incredible change. We weren't the first ones during the Apollo times in the U.S., the moon landing, in the, the American moon landing. There was something that in retrospect was called the Apollo effect. Nobody aimed at doing that, but the Apollo program created a spike in the number of engineers and scientists in the year to come in the U.S. And, you know, we, we targeted that from day one. And... When we got started, we, we, uh, we had a pro bono uh, PR company that did all the uh, public relations. And we asked Moti, the owner of the company, Moti, w- what's going to happen if we crash? We're going to, you know, a lot of kids are going to be disappointed. And he said, are you kidding me? If you crash, it's going to be an amazing drama story of perseverance how you crashed and you're building another one and this time you'll be succeeding. So that's another amazing lesson to every kid in Israel. And uh, yeah, he was right. <laughs> so basically you planned the crashing just to get more uh, viewers for oh, the no, next no, time. Oh, no, no, listen, it was, uh, it, it, you know, we, we weren't happy after that crash, I can tell you that. People were crying. Now, let's talk a bit about the uh, drone industry. And if you can, like... Give me the basics about uh, where do we stand today with drone technology? So uh, the company I, I currently uh, co-founded and I'm the CEO of is Flytrex Aviation. And we're doing drone deliveries. And more specifically, uh, we're doing drone deliveries for retailers and restaurant chains. So the concept is that in a few years from now, or a few weeks from now, depending on where you live, You'll be able to sit in your house, order a hamburger, a burrito, your next iPhone, and get it within 15 minutes or less from the nearest shopping center straight to your backyard. We just announced about a month ago 
our partnership with Walmart. We're doing drone deliveries for Walmart. We're starting, we already started in Fayetteville, in North Carolina. And if you're one of the lucky ones, you can today order your toothpaste, tomatoes, whatever you need from Walmart and get it delivered straight to your backyard. It's gonna be the, the most efficient way, the greenest way, and the quietest way to get anything you want as fast as you can order it. And that's what the Flytrex is all about. But if, and correct me if I'm wrong, I understand that Amazon has, the sim, uh, has a similar uh, solution, uh, probably uh, some other uh, drone technology. Is it, uh, is it something that you see as the future of, uh, of delivery? Uh, you know, thousands of drones uh, moving from here to there, like taxis, if you wish, uh, delivering packages from uh, different Mm -hmm. You're nodding your, hair, your head, meaning yeah, you agree to everything I'm saying? Yeah, it's, uh, if you think about it today, if you're living in a typical U.S. suburb, if you can get on-demand deliveries with companies like Grubhub or Uber Eats, you know, they're going to deliver a bag with a few pounds. And to do that, they're going to have to move a car that weighs between a ton and two with the person inside to get you your hamburger. And if you really think about that, that's ridiculous. That's a huge expense. Uh, a drone is robotic. It weighs less than 30 pounds. It zips through the air without any interruptions. And it's, it's a lot safer than, and, and quieter than, than a car driving on the road. Uh, the only thing that separates us between, that, between, you know, between now and that future is regulations. And in the past three years, we've been working with the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration in the USA, as part of the presidential program that was uh, initiated after an executive order from the White House. And we're working with the FAA on making that a reality. So we're starting small, and it's going to grow, you know, it's going to be huge. And you've got companies like Amazon pushing for that. And, I, you know, for me, Amazon are not competition. Once they start doing deliveries for Amazon, everyone else will need a similar solution. Uh, you know, 15 years ago, Amazon started doing, for, you know, getting orders online on the web. People laughed at that, companies, retailers joked, and look what happened. And today retailers are looking on the other side of the equation, the fulfillment side, and they're seeing Amazon tackling drones. Amazon is spending something like $100 million annually on, on the drone program, I think. So, you know, it's a crazy number. And the rest of the retailers are looking at that and they're thinking to themselves, well, we don't want to be out of that equation again. We don't want to get hit on the other side as well. So two following questions. One is, you know, we have roads, we have uh, stoplights, we have uh, all the ways to control those UberX or those cars that are carrying this uh, tiny hamburger you mentioned. But what about the sky? We're going to have thousands of vehicles traveling. Uh, how do you make sure that they are not uh, colliding or, I don't know, so delivering to uh, the wrong place? So, you know, I have some news for you. You already have thousands of vehicles flying above your head. Yeah. If a 787 has a problem, and it's heading towards your neighborhood, guess what? It's going to be your neighborhood's problem. 
Uh, if my drone has a problem, we've got you know, multiple levels of redundancies. I've got a parachute. And even if God forbids a crash in your backyard, so you know, that's one aspect of it. The other aspect is the traffic management. Today you have humans communicating over radio channels. That's like back from the 1940s, man. That's like the early you know, 20th century technology. The drones on the other end are going to communicate digitally. Everything's going to be computerized, controlled by, by algorithms. And the FAA is already working on that together with NASA. And that will allow for a lot more uh, vehicles in the air simultaneously. And well, while I'm cruising in the air, I'm quieter than a 787. You, you can't really see or hear me when I'm flying or buzzing above your house. So it's going to be much more efficient and quiet than anything today. Okay. It seems very, very logical and it seems straightforward. What about another question I have relating to, well, if it's a rural area, I understand, you know, there is a farm, the drone will fly over. But what about a skyscraper where you have, you know, like 700 people in the same place and you need to deliver it to the 40th floor? Are you going to knock on my window or are you going to drop it at the basement? Uh, so uh, currently neither. The U.S. has most of its population in, in living in private houses. We're talking about more than 70 million backyards where the population density and restaurant density isn't high enough to justify humans doing those things. So why aim at major cities where the user experience isn't that good? I'll have to deliver it to your rooftop or ask you to exit the building where I can just deliver straight to your backyards and offer you something that's either something that you don't have today or something that serves you much better on every aspect than what you can get today. Skyscrapers, maybe in a few years, but currently there's really, I don't have to go there yet. What about weight? Like uh, if it's a hamburger, I understand. What about it? Uh, you know, sometimes we go to the grocery with more than just uh, one hamburger. No, we're not going to deliver a new refrigerator to your backyard anytime soon. Okay. Or a large screen TV. Uh, currently, we, according to what we saw from Amazon publications, uh, our drone can carry roughly 90% of the packages that Amazon delivers these days. So we can tackle most of it especially if we're talking about food deliveries. If it's bigger, then yes, we wouldn't be able to handle it. That's, uh, you know, that's the, uh, the outlier. That's not the typical package. Okay. And what about, you know, uh, can you deliver soft things like eggs or uh, things that can break? And... We're already deliver delivering eggs from Walmart, uh, so far flawlessly. We tried taking coffee from Starbucks. Uh, we tried blizzards from Dairy Queen, that's like their, their version of a milkshake. And so far, uh, it, it works. It's, if you think about it, we're a lot more delicate than a guy driving his car, bringing you your package, and the, the package sits on the other seat, and when it breaks, it, you know, it falls down, or his dog sits on it, or something like that. So we're, we're much more careful with, your, with the package than anyone else. Uh, we don't drop it in your backyard. 
We hover up to 30 meters or more than 60 feet up in the air. And we lower the package on a wire slowly to the ground. And you can just pick it up. We release it and you can just pick it up from, the, uh, from your backyard. So it's a much better user experience and it's much nicer for the, uh, for the food or merchandise as well. Security or cybersecurity when it comes to, uh, to drones is something that always uh, fascinates me and probably uh, some, uh, some of our audience and, and for sure uh, Hollywood, which are using drones now to many, many uh, movies. So how do you protect the drone? How do you make sure that, uh, you know, the drone is indeed what I was, is coming from where I was expecting and is not bringing something that I was not expecting? Well, you know, you could send something that, that's illegal in a FedEx package and, you know, someone will, will get that package. So it's a bit similar with drones. Uh, it's not about the technology, it's about what people do with the technology. Yeah. Uh, so FedEx doesn't work with, with you know, private individuals. Uh, you have a professional team operating the fleet. They're loading packages. Those packages come from retailers or restaurant chains. The operator itself can't even choose a point on a map. Everything is pre-known and pre-surveyed by the system. All it does is, you know, install the right package on the, on the drone and press the green button. So it's a very automatic system. If you want to do something illegal, unlawful, it's a lot easier to go and buy a toy or assemble your own drone from DIY parts. And then you have a system that you can really fly anywhere you want and do naughty stuff with. We're the, uh, the least of the concerns of, of, every, you know, of everyone because we're, we're a company that works with regulators. So in general, not specific to you guys, what are the risks in, in, uh, in drone technology or in this, uh, you know, if everything, you know, everything is controlled, everything is nice, uh, what probably the risks? Yeah, so you have to take into account the alternatives. And people usually, when it comes to drones, they care about three things, or they're afraid of three things, uh, safety, privacy, and noise. Those are the, uh, the major three concerns. In terms of safety, it's a very automated system. If there's an anomaly in the air, the drone automatically identifies that and flies back. We have multiple redundancies on every level, and there's an independent system that can shut down the models, fire a parachute, and sound the siren. So it's really a very redundant system, a very safe one. We go through a very rigorous process together with the Federal Aviation Administration for every system and for the drone itself. Uh, it's really treated like a general aviation vehicle. We, we're getting a commercial type certification, and that's the same kind of certification that Boeing gets for their airplanes. We're talking with the same things. It's a different risk category because we weigh a lot less, but it's still the same process. A very lengthy one, takes between three and five years, and it assures uh, the FAA that you know what you're doing and the airworthiness of the vehicle is, is, is certified. So that's the, in terms of safety. And you have to remember that the alternative in this case is a minimal wage guy driving for 10 hours in a one-ton car, driving 55 miles per hour, 100 kilometers, 
Maybe he didn't sleep last night. Maybe he drank something. Maybe he had a fight with his girlfriend. Maybe he's texting or looking at his cell phone at the, uh, the next stop he has to do. And that's like a hundred times more riskier than an automated system that's a hundred of the weight. It, de- it depends. Sometimes uh, after he drinks, he goes and uh, invents a new startup called Space IM. If he does that while walking, then that's one, you know, that's, that's okay. If he's driving on a highway, that's, uh, uh, you know, that's uh, not that good. You know, even today, when we get just getting started, my third-party insurance rate is already one-fifth of what an Uber driver pays for his insurance. And, and it's crazy, and it's just going to go down. Humans aren't getting any better. My drones are. So that's in terms of the safety. In terms of privacy, it's very easy. We, we realize that that's going to be a major concern. We don't have any cameras on board. There's uh, no visual sensors. And that way, there's no privacy issues. If you're seeing a Flytrex drone, rest assured, it's not taking any videos or images because it doesn't have the capability. And that's something that, you know, the FAA certifies you. My drone is designed without a camera. If I want to install a camera, I'll have to certify that with the FAA. It's not something that I can just install. You can't install a camera on a 787 just because you want to. Uh, in terms of the uh, noise levels, we go through a, a noise level measurement process with the FAA, with a third-party organization that does that on their behalf while we are paying them, of course, to make sure that we are quiet. And again, from what we're seeing today, we're a lot quieter than anything else. If you think about the alternative, a scooter or a car or a truck stopping by your house, that's a lot more noisier than a drone hovering at 30 meters, 60, 70, 80 feet up in the air for half a minute while lowering the package on a wire. It's a lot quieter than anything else. You've mentioned delivery as one of the first outcomes of this technology. What other fields do you see drones can, uh, can affect? So we're seeing drones uh, going uh, very strong into uh, reconnaissance. When you want to have the, uh, an overview of what's happening uh, in an area, from firefighting to uh, defense and homeland security issues, uh, to just doing uh, bridge inspection and, and, and monitoring or uh, real estate uh, agents using the drones to take images of, the, of, of a new house or a house on sale. Uh, you're also seeing drones entering agriculture very strong, being used to monitor crops, or even now you're seeing drones, we're seeing drones that are big enough to start spraying drones with pesticides, spraying fields with pesticides. And so I think those are the areas where we'll be seeing drones other than deliveries. Other areas where drones are used are for power lines and pipelines and other infrastructure inspection, as well as monitoring mining areas or mining fields, those kind of things. I also saw drones being used to monitor solar panels on large solar panel farms, those kind of things where you have a repetitive task that you can have an automated system replacing the humans. Yeah, this is fascinating. And uh, if, you know, if I compare it to um, any other field, you have a range of, of products, like in mobile, you have dumb devices, and then you went into smart devices, better cameras, better, uh, you know, uh, power and stuff. What's, what's the difference in, in drones? So it's a great question. And 
each drone with its own use case. So a drone that's gonna take images of an area, uh, it could be a much smaller drone than the FlightX drone because it doesn't have to carry payload. It needs a camera, a camera that uh, is gimbaled or protected from vibrations or movement of the vehicles. Uh, it's a very different machine. Even if you talk about deliveries, uh, not all drone deliveries are the same. And you can th talk about ground-based vehicles. And then, you know, if I told you that I'm doing ground-based deliveries, there's a huge difference between a semi-truck uh, doing a west, you know, a coast-to-coast -coast, uh, delivery and a guy on a bike doing a delivery in Manhattan. They're both doing deliveries, but each one is doing a very different delivery. So it's, it's the same even within drone deliveries. You've got companies, you don't have too many, but you've got companies like Flytrex that are doing high bandwidth, low margins, short range deliveries to people's backyards. And then you've got companies that are interested in delivering medical supplies 100 miles away. And that's a very different work point in terms of technology, of the vehicle, of the unit economics, of the marketing, business, etc. It's a very different company. Grabhub versus UPS, they're both doing deliveries, but very much uh, different deliveries. If you look and you let yourself kind of uh, do the same thing you've done with, uh, with SpaceIL, but in the, with, with the drone as a field, and look like five, ten years ahead, what future do you envision to this industry? So I think it's going to bring us, especially drone deliveries, to an era of instant gratification. And if you years from now, you're not going to have a shopping list, a grocery list. If you remember 15 years ago, you logged on to Amazon and you added items to your cart. And when the cart was big enough, you, you, know, you, you checked out because delivery was costly and you wanted to aggregate items before you, you ship them. Today with Amazon Prime, nobody aggregates. Nobody adds items to his grocery, to, to his shopping list. You just click buy now. You can do that a few times every day and you don't really care because Amazon have made next day delivery so cheap. You don't really care about that. And I think with drones, we're going to make on demand as cheap as, as next day delivery. So instead of having your weekly grocery list, because you have to go out there and go into the grocery store and start, you know, going through the aisles, picking up the items, or pay 5, 10, 15 bucks for that delivery and schedule that a week in advance. In a few years, if I'm going to need tomatoes for dinner, I'll just, you know, order tomatoes. If a bunch of friends are coming over because COVID-19 is gone and they can come, and I need a bottle of wine, I'll just order a bottle of wine. Uh, and I think that's the, uh, in terms of drone deliveries, that's where the, uh, where, where the future we're aiming at. It's going to take a while, but once we get that uh, unit economics down to, uh, to a few bucks per delivery, that's where we'll be. Very interesting and fascinating for sure. And uh, I'm always happy that we are living in such a uh, you know, dynamic uh, future or present, actually. I agree. I agree. There's a nice saying by the uh, famous uh, sci-fi author, uh, Douglas Adams. He said that the future is already here. It's just uh, not spread equally over geographies. Yep. We're near the end, and I would like to 
come back to uh, to Space AL and ask you maybe two things. First of all, what are you doing now at Space AL in terms of uh, what is the mission? And are you now targeting to, uh, to do the second round? So yes, we are uh, now working on the, uh, uh, the second spacecraft. It's, uh, I can't uh, discuss that yet, but it's going to be more ambitious. You know, we're Israelis. If we fail the first time, it has to be better on the second time. So that's where we're aiming. Uh, we'll expose that, I hope, by the end of this year. And then you'll, uh, everybody will be able to see what we're, we're planning. We already started doing the fundraising over there. Uh, we're looking for people to join us on the journey to the moon. And it's one heck of a journey. And hopefully, uh, this time uh, we'll get the medal gold, the gold medal, sorry. Yeah. And if you look, the same thing about the future of uh, space travel, if you wish. What do you see coming up our alley in the coming few years? So I think it's all about, at the end, if you're talking about deep space missions, it's all about the money, the budget. Uh, we've got people planning to sending humans to Mars. You can't really do that as a commercial company. It doesn't make sense. You can't go to your board and tell your board, dear board members, I'm going to spend $100 billion of your money to send a mission to, the, to Mars, and we're going to have zero revenues or, I don't know, a few hundreds of millions of, of revenues uh, to, you know, to cover less than 1% of the mission. So I think we're going to see a lot more robotic missions because as the price goes down, uh, smaller entities, not just empires, will be able to do deep space missions. And we're already seeing that happen, happening. And SpaceL was like the, the first, you know, the first of its kind. But now you've got smaller uh, countries and organizations doing deep space missions. So that's going to grow. But in terms of sending humans, I think the, uh, there's, uh, it's going to take a while. There's really no direct commercial benefit in sending humans out there. And it's going to be hard to justify those budgets. Uh, it's going to be mostly research budgets. And there aren't too many entities capable of doing that. And these projects usually take a lot longer than commercial projects. So we spoke about a lot about, uh, you know, the flight industry. And we spoke about uh, space and we spoke about drones. Any other field that uh, is emerging out of those areas uh, that we should look out? I think we recovered pretty much uh, most of it. Good. Um, it was a pleasure. Um, I really enjoyed the talk. I thank you for the time and I thank you for uh, having the patience to walk us through it. Yariv, all the best. Uh, best of luck to you and the team and uh, looking forward for your next mission. Uh, thank you, Avishai. It was my pleasure. And you know, don't forget to like us on Facebook, Space IL. And that way you, you'll be the first ones to know about the, the next mission and uh, what we're doing. Thanks for listening to Future of Tech. If you like what you heard and want more, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you have any comments or questions, feel free to write to our host, Avishai Sharlin, directly on LinkedIn.